Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 reads, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at, his vo- at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Let us pray this morning. Father, as we come before you, Lord God, and we think of this recollection, Lord God, of Isaiah's vision of you, is the Lord seated high and exalted upon your throne. Lord, the only response was holy, holy, holy. Lord, let us be confronted with your holiness today. And Lord, let us look to you, Lord, as the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, for we know that we are, just like Isaiah, people of unclean lips who dwell among people of unclean lips. Lord, we thank you, Lord God, that you atone for our sins. And Lord, I pray that this morning this message, Lord, would touch the hearts of Your people, that You would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord God, what You are saying to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was told one time by a a man that he said, if you're you're ever public speaking and you you ever get nervous, start off with a joke. Um, And I said, well, I'm not going to do that because I, I would rather... Honestly, if I was going to speak, I would rather model our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you look in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he didn't start off with any joke. He started off with, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, so I, I would rather follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But either way, um, I oftentimes think about that. Every time I get up to speak, uh, there, there doesn't need to be a joke. This is the Lord's house. And may we get into his word first and foremost. Let, it, let us see what he is saying first and foremost. So in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we see that it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death. King Uzziah, which you may or may not know this, um, he reigned in Israel for 52 years. Uh, so his death would be a momentous occasion. People would remember that. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have a ruler or president or something like that for 52 years straight. Um, I, I know we all have opinions on that, but I, I can't imagine having a president or, or an elected official or even a king or queen that long. Um, but Uzziah reigned for 52 years. And at his death, this is why Isaiah points to that. He, he points back to the fact that people would remember this. This is the year that King Uzziah died. And in a vision, Isaiah saw the Lord. He says the Lord was highly exalted and seated on a throne. Highly exalted and seated 
on a throne. He mentions the train of his robe. And in ancient times, the measure of or length of a ruler's robe was the sign of his status. It was said that when a king would, would defeat a nation or a territory, that he would cut off a piece of the robe of, of the vanquished king and then sew it onto the bottom of his own robe, meaning the longer the train, the more victorious the king. The train of God's robe filled the temple. God is supreme. He is the supreme king and ruler of all. When we think about that, God's train filled the entire temple. Isaiah makes mention of these angelic beings, these seraphim. And he describes this, this amazing creature with six wings. And you, you, you read, as you read down through this narrative, you're thinking, okay, well, he's got six wings and he only flies with two of them. What's the point of six wings? Well, they were created in such a way that they could live and minister before the throne of God. See, these beings could not look upon God in His fullness. As it says, with two wings, these seraphim covered their faces. In the book of Exodus, we read that Moses asked God if he could see His glory face to face. Yet God would would only let Moses momentarily see His back, see the backside of His glory. And He did not let him see Him face to face because if Moses would have seen and beheld God face to face, he would have died. Because God is that glorious. God is holy. See, the problem is not with the eye, it's with the soul. In the Beatitudes, it says that there's only one type of person who sees God. It says the pure in heart shall see God. I think this is the problem. I love what Paul Washer says about this. He says the problem is God is holy and you are not. We are not. God is holy. Ultimately holy. Totally holy. We see that these seraphim cover two, use two of their wings to cover their feet. See, feet are a symbol of creatureliness. When Moses, when, when he was there at the burning bush, God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and he instructed him to remove his sandals because where he stood was holy ground. It was holy ground. It was not due to Moses' standing there that made it holy. It was the fact that God's presence was in that place. Remove the sandals from your feet for where you stand is holy ground. See, the covering of the feet of these angels represent the fact that they are creatures created by God in humble service before this mighty King. What, what, a, what a picture we see here. What, what beautiful imagery. And, and just even thinking of these angels, these angelic beings, and I, I know that um, probably when Pastor Deacon comes back next week, we'll dig into uh, what the, the church teaches on angels and demons, right? Angelology and things like that. Um, but we see these seraphim, and these are ministers before the throne of God. And they were created in such a way that they could accurately and effectively minister before God. That's why they had to have two wings to cover their face. Because to look directly on the glory of God, they would, they would die as well. And the, the fact that they were creatures created by God, they had to cover their feet. See, the covering of the feet of these angels represent the fact that they are in humble service to this mighty king. See, they flew with the two other wings and they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Sabaoth, or the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. The message of the seraphim is to proclaim God's glory, His weightiness, you know that word glory? 
is weight, a heaviness. And think about God in all of His glory, the weightiness of God, God's substance, His majesty. Isaiah allowed to see this vision of God in His glory and these seraphim flying back and forth shouting to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. It says the whole earth is full of His glory. It's this glory that provokes the angels to sing holy. Notice of all the attributes of God that they could be praising, they praise His holiness. And why three times holy? You ever, you ever ask yourself these questions? See, I'm a simple man. Okay, I, I know I say this a lot. I'm simple. I, I try to think in simple terms. And I come across certain things and I'm like, you know, if, if I was talking to somebody and I wanted to say God is holy, I'd probably just say, God is holy. These angels, though, back and forth, ministering before the throne of God, back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy. Why three times holy? See, we can see an obvious reason as they declare the holiness of all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We can gather that from that. But we can look at another aspect. When somebody wanted to get the attention of the people as they would come to speak, let's say the king was coming in and he had to make a decree over the kingdom, what would they do? They would sound a trumpet. Right? Okay, that wasn't a very good trumpet. But... Okay, they would make sure that you, they had your attention. Okay, and think about in writing, right? If we're to write a message and we wanted to stress a certain part of that message, um, we would use things like if, in your type, right? I, uh, the other day I brought up what word processor. Does anybody use a word processor anymore? Anyhow, um, on your computer, right, you got that little big B right up top. You can make it bold or italic or underline something if you wanted to stress a certain part. You know, and if you really wanted to stress it for greater effect, you would use bold, italic, underline, and all caps, right? See, we, we do that in writing. Well, see, this three-time repeated holy is used much in the same way. It's, it's the way when Jesus would come out and he would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, right? Which in, in the Greek is amen, amen. He's, he's making a statement. Listen, this is true. This is true. He wanted to make sure he stressed the fact that what he was about to say was the truth. R.C. Sproul says on this, So the angels are not content with holy, and they are not even content with the emphasis of holy, holy. They must say it three times. Holy, holy, holy. They take it to the third degree, to the superlative degree. No other attribute of God is praised like this. Not love or mercy or justice or sovereignty. Just holy. Ever find it strange that the angels were not shouting back and forth, love, love, love? That's what everybody wants to stress about God today, right? That God is a God of love. Yes, God is a God of love. God is love, as we read in, in, in John. What about God is mercy, mercy, mercy? Yes, we praise God for His mercy. We praise God for His grace, but they're not shouting around the throne, grace, grace, grace. They shout this one. One attribute of God, which I believe is above every other attribute because God cannot operate in any of His attributes without them all being present at once. God is merciful in His holiness. God, is, God shows grace in His holiness. God is even full of wrath in His holiness. This holiness 
is the thing that the seraphim repeat three times. Holy, holy, holy. The doorposts and the thresholds shook at the resounding holiness of God. As the angels shouted back and forth, holy, 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 the doorposts of the temple at the thresholds shook. See, it's not enough to only... It's, it's, this, when we see this, it's, it's not just enough to put you in awe, but it really shows us our own state before a thrice holy God. Like I said earlier, uh, Paul Washer quotes, God is holy and we are not. That's the problem. Isaiah was a man of integrity. We know Isaiah, right? You read through the book of Isaiah and what a, what a wonderful prophet this was, a man called by God to do the things of God. And Isaiah was a man of integrity, yet one glimpse of God's holiness causes him to fall apart at the seams. Look at verse 5. It says in verse 5, Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I believe the King James says, For I am undone. He is coming apart at the seams. This, this, is, this, this woe to me. And when I think about this, this, this sight of God's holiness... It, it, didn't, it didn't cause Isaiah to, to run and shout and dance around or anything like that. It caused him to see his own wretchedness before a holy God. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. His filthiness before a holy God was so evident that he saw his pitiful state before the Lord. See, if we were to compare Isaiah to others in his era or even ourselves, uh, he would look clean comparatively. Isaiah would look, I mean, he was God's prophet, right? You would think of all people in God's kingdom that, that of all the people, the prophets would be the cleanest of all, right? See, I oftentimes think of it like this. Imagine that you see a white lamb, a beautiful white lamb standing and grazing in a field. Okay, you see this white lamb. He looks so clean, right? Especially to the backdrop of the muddy ground that's behind him. And you see these other sheep that are in the field grazing and they look dirty compared to this white sheep. He just looks like he's blazing white. Well, it begins to snow. And the sheep leave the field. They enter the barn. And then once all the grass has been covered, the sheep then emerge from the barn. And you see that same lamb. It seems so white, so pure. And he comes out and he looks so filthy. He looks dirty compared to the backdrop of the snow because the snow is pure white. We see this lamb and we, we begin to look, okay, why, why did that lamb look so clean before? Because of what we were comparing that lamb to. See, now he looks filthy. The white snow did not make the animal dirty. But it revealed the blemishes that were not formally seen because of the objects of comparison. When we compare ourselves to others, we said, tend to say, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I've never killed anybody. Right? That's usually our go-to. Well, what about the one who has killed somebody? You know, we, we oftentimes put these, these different degrees on sin and things like that. But, you know, this is a wonderful thing. I, I love what Scripture says, and I believe it's in Timothy. Paul writes, he says, this is, a, a worthy, uh, this, this is worthy and full of all acceptance. This is what I'm about to say. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I, this, this is... This is the greatest thing about that statement. If you're a sinner, that's the absolute best news you'll ever hear. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if you're perfect, 
Sorry. But none of us are perfect, and we know that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not even one. Right? There was one who was righteous, right? The only Son of God. And He came and died to take away our sin. And all of us who come to Him, as it says in that Scripture, that, that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He did not come for those... There's a physician, right? He talks about a physician. The physician goes to those who are sick. Jesus Christ came to those who were stained with this sin sickness. Thank God He came. Amen? So when we think of the state or the condition of that lamb that looks so pure... The state or the condition of the animal did not change, but his environment did. And in much the same way, compared to a holy, righteous God, we are considered an unclean thing. As Isaiah writes later in his, in his writings, he says, for your righteousness is as a filthy rag. Not, not to try to get gross or anything like that, but that, that imagery there is to say that our righteousness is as a used menstrual cloth. Our righteousness is as a filthy rag. See, an encounter with this thrice holy God makes us well aware of our own spiritual poverty. And and I mentioned earlier the Beatitudes. And only the pure in heart will see God. You know what the first one is? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. We have to come to God broken in our spirit, knowing that He is holy and we are not. You know, I've often spoken to people and and. There's a lot of people, they, they will try to compare themselves to others and they, they don't want to admit the fact that they're sinners. And I love when somebody's willing to admit that they're too dirty to be saved by God. Like, no, nobody's too dirty. Nobody's too far gone. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I like what Paul says, of whom I am chief. Now, when I get to heaven, I'm going to argue with him because I believe I'm the chief of sinners. I was the chief of sinners. God has forgiven me of so much greater than I could even begin to express to you. And what a thought that this is when we come before the, the holiness of God. We see ourselves for what we truly are. It's not because compared to others we see ourselves as worse, right? But next to absolute perfection, we acknowledge our obvious imperfections. It's obvious imperfections. I, I love how when you, if you go to Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, you know, Romans chapter 1 points out these obvious sinners. Romans chapter 2 points out those hypocritical sinners who will say that those in, in chapter 1, well, yeah, obviously they're sinners, but we're not like them. But he points out even the sins of those, the hearts of those who believe themselves to be pure. And then you get to chapter 3 and he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. No one's exempt. There's not one of us that's exempt. We've all sinned. I'm not going to ask you to ever confess all your sins to me, but we confess our sins before a holy God. And we know that if we come to Him in repentance and faith, that He forgives us. Praise God, right? That all who repent and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior are covered with the imputed righteousness of the perfect spotless Lamb of God. Imputed righteousness. I love this this imputation, and I know I know Pastor Deacon. He, he's one that loves loves to speak theological words. He likes doctrine and things like that. The the doctrine of double imputation is a wonderful doctrine. See, all of our sin was placed on Jesus as though he had committed every sin that the whole world has committed. It was placed on him, and he died under the wrath of God for that. 
And therefore, those who trust in Him and repent and turn from their sins, they are covered with His righteous robe. We are looked at from God as though we are His very own perfect Son because He was first looked at as though He was the vile sinner that we were. He took our death, our wrath in our place. I love the doctrine of imputation. See, what we see next though in this account of Isaiah is an overwhelming of God's grace and mercy. Look at verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. He states that your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. What a kind act from a gracious God. You know, we, we read through the Scriptures, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody else. We read quickly through the Scriptures sometimes to just get our daily reading done. And I don't think that we take the time to pause and you know, kind of step back and really see the scene as, as it's going on. But there's a lot going on. And I only read eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. There's a lot going on in those eight verses. And even as you continue reading down through that, the rest of that account, that, man, there, there's, there's an amazing thing taking place there. Slow down a little bit and read and actually see what the Scriptures are saying. And when we see this, when God has this angel touch the lips with a burning coal, touch the lips of Isaiah, it's a wonderful act of grace and mercy. See, I think of this we begin to see a pattern that I believe should be the same pattern we see in the life of one confronted with the holiness of God. First, we see awe. Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord highly and exalted, high and lifted up. And he, he speaks of the train of the robe. He talks about the smoke filling the temple and all these things, the, the foundations being shaken. We see awe first. Then we see a realization of our own sinfulness. Isaiah seeing this, hearing these angels shout back and forth, Holy, holy, holy. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. And the accurate response from that is repentance. Notice what Isaiah does next. He says, For I am a man of unclean lips. You know, we, we often think, you know, I, I think of myself, I put myself in his shoes and I, I think if my only sin was that I was a man of unclean lips, you know, if that was it, because there's, there's so many, there's so many that I would have felt guilty before God, that I would have felt absolutely condemned before the holiness of God. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. His, his response was repentance. He confessed his sin before God. And in confessing his sins before a holy God, God cleansed him from his unrighteousness. God had that seraphim take that coal and touch his lips. And then we see the next step in this pattern. It's to serve this great and holy God of love and grace and mercy. Look at verse 8. I get that from there. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. This is the pattern of a believer. This is the pattern of one who has been truly affected by the holiness of God. That we have then experienced the grace of this holy God. Our response 
when we repent and we know our sin is forgiven, our response is, Lord, use me. Use me to send your message. Acts chapter 1. We're going to turn there. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Acts 1, 1 through 9, it says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of me, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. See, on the day of Pentecost, this, this ten days after Jesus had ascended here, the Holy Spirit did indeed come just as Christ had promised. And those who tarried in the upper room, 120 to be exact, as Scripture shows us, received this power of which Jesus spoke. Jesus said they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. They They would have this power, the power of the Holy Spirit, to be His witnesses. To be His witnesses. What do we see when we get to Acts chapter 2, when the believers receive the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And as we continue to read down through that, this is the first Holy Spirit-led sermon as, as we now see that the church has received the Holy Spirit. Peter opened up the Scriptures. And to those that were listening, he preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He showed them that the act that they were seeing, that the fact that the Holy Spirit had come, was prophesied in the Old Testament and it proved he proved from Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. In short, Peter proclaimed the Gospel. If you jump down to verses 36 through 39 of Acts chapter 2, He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to Himself. That day about 3,000 were added to the church. 3,000. Because Peter 
now has this power to be the witness that Christ said He would be. Preach the Gospel. Paul says in in Romans chapter 1, For I am unashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Power is in the Gospel. And we have the power to be His witnesses because we have His Holy Spirit. So the pattern, let us be in awe of God's holiness. Let us realize our own condition before the Lord. Let us repent and be cleansed from our unrighteousness. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then let us willingly and humbly do what the Lord has instructed us to do. You know, I I think of this. James states that to be doers of the Word and not just hearers. We're to be doers of the Word. I'm not trying to talk in a legalistic sense, but in, in the sense that we are to follow the commands of Scripture. Jesus even stated, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Those who love Christ will keep His commandments. And when we come to this, this fact in James chapter 1, He says, prove yourselves doers of the Word, not just hearers who deceive themselves. You know, it's a great, great and wonderful thing to come into church and hear the Word of God preached and proclaimed from the pulpit. This, this is, I'll tell you the truth, this is what, you know, my whole week builds to this. You know, I love coming in. Um, you know, it's for four years as I served as a pastor, I thought, man, I, I want to I go and sit in the pew and hear the preacher proclaim the Word of God. You know, I, I had the wonderful opportunity to do so myself, but every Sunday I kind of felt like, you know what, I need to hear the Word of God preached. So oftentimes I would actually re-listen to my message because we need the Word of God. We need to hear it preached. We need to have it in us. We need to, to live this Word out because as it fills us, it comes out of us. It's not just enough to sit in the pew and listen. You know, and even as we've been talking about in our, in our theology class and, and even Sunday mornings and Sunday school, you know, it's not enough to just fill our heads with all this knowledge and to know all the answers to all the questions that anybody would ask us, but we are tra- changed and transformed by the Word of God to live out what God has given to us in His Word. You know, it's one thing to know about that imputation. It's another thing as you've experienced that imputation to go and preach to others that you can be saved too and you can experience the same thing. It says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, even in that great commission, when Jesus is sending out the disciples to go and make other disciples of all the nations, He says, baptize them and teach them to observe all the things that I command you. We have a wonderful promise right there at the end. He says, for I am with you always. You know, we we oftentimes come hesitantly um, you know, and, and that's that's one of the things that, that you know, I, I think coming to preach, any time that I get the opportunity, I, I see it as a privilege to be able to stand at, at the holy desk to bring God's word to his people. 
I, I see it as an absolute privilege. And, and the reason I don't have to start off with a joke is because I'm not coming here nervously. You know, I, I dread the fact of coming up here because I want to rightly handle the Word of God. And it, it, I, there is a fear that overtakes me when I step into the pulpit, but it's not because those who, who I'm standing in front of, I get nervous because I see all these people. I am under the fear of God that if I don't rightly handle this Word, then I have to answer to Him. You know, my job is not to come up here and to give you some sort of feel-good message so that you can leave here and be, oh yeah, that was so great. The message, the, the, the purpose of the preacher is to bring the Word of God. I, I, and, and maybe one of these days I'll get to preach the message, but um, I, I think of Ezra, right? When they re- rebuild the wall of, of Jerusalem and they re- they're building the temple, right? And they bring all the people in and they, they say, you know, well, we're missing something. Well, yeah, all the people say to Ezra, bring the book. Bring the book. We need the book. And the book was the scrolls. It was, it was the Word of God. And that's what the people knew they needed. And, you know, it, it's, we oftentimes, you know, we'll look at the clock and, well, he's preaching. I, I forgot my watch this morning, but sorry. Um, but we look at the clock like, man, he's preaching a long time. From, from sunup till sundown, they read the book. And what they didn't finish, they started the next day. You know, I, 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 I wouldn't mind getting back to those days where you preach long enough that somebody falls out the window and dies because they fell asleep. Okay? I, I love to hear the Word of God. I love to experience the truth of God's Word. I love it. You know, maybe preach long enough that somebody can come in, be struck down and killed by God, and then they go, they bury the body, and they come back, and then somebody still, they're still having church, and they still have an opportunity to come in and lie to God and die again and go out and bury them too. You know, that, that's a church service. You know, there used to be the old Baptist churches. You'd, they, they said there was a starting time. I kind of like that pattern. There was a starting time. Come to church, church starts at 10 a.m. You know, and well, when, when's it over? Church starts at 10 a.m. You know, I, I like that. Because there, there was a fellowship there. There was people that were there and they, they lingered with one another and they spent time with one another and they talked about the things that the preacher preached about. They fellowshiped over the Word of God. They fellowshiped with one another. And then they said, you know, okay, well, like 6 o'clock, hey, let's all go back into the church. We're going to have another Bible study. Like for me, that's living. You know what I mean? I'm good with that. But it's not just enough to hear it. Because you know what Sunday does? It equips you. It equips you for the rest of the week while you're out living it. We're to know it. We're to live it. We're to share it. Yeah, I, I think of this confrontation, I guess, that Isaiah has. He, he's confronting himself before the holiness of God. And as this whole scene plays out for us, we, we see this, this wonderful thing that takes place. That, yeah, Isaiah is, he sees the holiness of God, but he recognizes his own sinfulness. Yet there's atonement. You know, that's the, the wonderful thing. About, you know, the good news, the gospel, right? The good news is the fact that Jesus Christ came to die for us. You know, we, we understand that all sinners deserve the wrath of God. We understand that completely. 
But there's grace and mercy found through Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to experience the wrath of God. I, I, I can't even begin to imagine or fathom what that would be like. I understand why Jesus, when He was praying in the garden, I, I don't know if you've ever been knowing, like so anxious about what was to come that you began to sweat blood. I, I can't imagine the anguish that He was in knowing that that He was going to go to the cross, not to face crucifixion, but to face the wrath of Almighty God. He knew the wrath of God. And He knew He had to face it for us on our behalf. I understand that sweating drops of blood. I get that. Because I don't want to experience the wrath of God. And I thank God that Jesus Christ experienced that wrath for me so I never have to. What a wonderful truth that is. But is it enough just for you to experience that? Think of others. Think of loved ones. Think of people you come in contact with. I wouldn't wish hell on my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish the, the wrath of God on my worst enemy. I can't imagine being in the presence of God and experiencing His holiness. And, and the same thing that I believe that Isaiah would, he did here, that, that I would do the same, that I would say, woe is me. For I am undone. I'm ruined. Just to experience the holiness of God. And one day though, one day because Christ's righteousness has been laid to our account, we will see God face to face. We won't be separated from Him, but brought in as His dear children. Wouldn't you want everybody else to experience the same? This is why Christ gave His commission to go and make disciples. If if the original apostles would not have taken that commission seriously, we wouldn't be sitting here today. You know when He says that it will reach to the outermost regions of the earth? That's why we are here in Christ today. Because they went and they made disciples. Let us. Let us go and preach the Gospel and make disciples Bring them in and teach them the things that Christ has commanded us. And we have this promise that Christ is with us even till the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, as we come before You, Lord God, Lord, I think of the weightiness of this message and I think of the weightiness of Your holiness. To have the angels shouting, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Lord, let the weightiness of this message also impact our hearts and our lives to change our minds and to to propel us onward, Lord God, to preach the Gospel, to win others to Christ, to make disciples, to baptize and to teach them the things that You commanded us. Lord, and I thank You for that great promise that we have that You are with us always. Lord, I pray that you strengthen and encourage us, Lord God, by your word and by your spirit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.